Nope, it's not just for kids. You're right. But the calendar's been just for me, and it's going back in my office, by the way. And by the way, I think I got it in March. I mean, there was a like a lot of the year left, so it was a good buy for a quarter. I couldn't walk by and not buy a calendar that's full of deer for a quarter. I had to do it, so I did it. Huh? One cent, I'll buy 12 of them <laughs> if they had them. All right, hey, today we are going to return to Ecclesiastes. We have been in Ecclesiastes now. This makes our fourth week. But today we're not keeping up with it in chapter order necessarily because last week in chapter 3 was one thing that we'll review in just a moment. But today we're going to leap into chapter 5, chapter 5 of Ecclesiastes as we listen again to the words of the preacher, also known as Solomon. Again, last week, though, before we look into the fifth chapter this morning, we were into the third chapter. And as we leaped into the third chapter last week, we began to notice something different about the words that were written. We noticed there was no more like we had seen in the chapters one and two, where Solomon was writing in the first person or the third person. There, there was none of that that seemed to exist as we looked into the first eight verses of chapter three. While that was one thing that was noticeably different, we also recognized that he was no more referring to these former things or the things that he referred to as vanity of vanities, which was often the phrase he repeated in chapter 1. He also mentioned that, th that things were meaningless and there was nothing new under the sun. We didn't see that either. And for that matter, we also didn't see, as we found in the second chapter, we ventured into the second chapter, that he had talked about his wealth, his possessions, and his wisdom, and how he had all these things. And you remember in chapter 2, he used a new phrase and declared all that then just simply chasing after the wind. There was none of that as we looked into the third chapter. Because then we began to notice that something was different about the text in Solomon himself. So we ventured then, we recognized that Solomon was having a turning point in his life. As he begins to consider the meaning and purpose of life, we notice he was no longer looking under the sun, but now begin to turn his attention and make a transition to things above the sun. And we notice that into the third chapter. Now he's still talking about, still exploring the purpose and meaning of life, but today he makes another transition, still talking about things above the sun, as he now turns his attention to worship. He goes into the temple, he makes an observation, and turns his attention to worship, certainly and above the sun activity, and he then makes a warning for all the people reading Ecclesiastes. He warns his readers of the dangers of making worship meaningless. It's a warning really for everyone to make sure that we never let worship, the praise and honor and glory we give to our Lord Jesus, never, never make that mundane, make it very commonplace, for it's just nothing special to us. It should always be something extraordinary. He gives us a warning that we apply to our lives today to always make worship to our Lord something special. Never allow it to become so common. That is just ordinary and is no longer priority. 
That'll be the theme we have for today as we look into the first seven verses of Ecclesiastes chapter 5. So stand with me this morning, if you can do so, as we simply honor the word by standing together in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 1 through 7. Solomon writes these words as we look into his text. He says in chapter, in chapter 5, verse 1, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business, and a fool's voice with many words. Verse 4, when you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. Father, Lord, we come into your presence once more. And Lord, today as we look into Solomon's words pertaining to worship. We want to open our hearts. We want to pay attentive to the word today, Lord, that he has voiced, that we have read, and see, Lord, how it applies to us in our day. Or simply, we know that things in life happen, which sometimes can misplace our desire to truly worship you. So that the Lord, they speak to all of us and speak directly to our heart, that you be first and our only desire to worship. Thank you, Lord, for what we shall learn and apply here today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as you're being seated, I'm going to share something with you this morning because I'm going to admit to you right now that going to church, worshiping Jesus, was never on my horizon in the early part of my adulthood. I mean, in a sense... Many years ago, I was just like Solomon in some way because seeking a career in my life, providing for my family was what I felt my meaning and my purpose. I sought after wealth and possessions and much more. Again, to me, that was my purpose. My purpose was defined in my early 20s going even into my 30s in life. With my family and my career, that was all my focus. And my purpose was to provide for them and to make sure they had plenty. Recognizing that there was life above the sun, like Solomon is now beginning to recognize in his life as he explores meaning and purpose, was something that never occurred to me until the age of 38. Until that day, Jesus was not even close to enter my heart. I mean, he wanted to be in my heart. I just wouldn't entertain the thought of it. Church did not mean anything. In fact, if somebody once told me, and they had upon a couple of occasions that I need Jesus, I need to go to church, I would simply tell them, I don't need any of that. You might, I don't. But I should also admit to you that I was not without understanding a few things about church. 
as a child, my parents, my mostly my mother, did take us to church occasionally. My dad, as he worked at MG Packing Company six or seven days a week at times, if he didn't work on the seventh day, he would just go fishing on Sunday morning. Well, he didn't accompany us to church if, if, if we went. But my mom would take us occasionally. And when I went to church as a child, then, honestly, it never meant anything. I mean, honestly, I remember two things about my childhood when and if we went to church. The first thing we remember is the fact that if we ever went to Sunday school, the Sunday school teacher brought the kids snacks. Man, that was great. I mean, I brought snacks today for the, the junior high boys class that I teach. We had white powdered donuts, which is really good. And we had ding-dongs, and we had water. So today we had those snacks. But I remember the Sunday school teacher I had, sometimes he would have those kind of things. And then sometimes when we went sporadically, he would give us a candy bar. And for me, as a child not growing up with much at all, man, a candy bar was something special. I remember that. The other thing I remember about going to church as a child is that when it came time to take communion, we either didn't go, or if we went and were surprised by being there, we didn't participate. That's all I really remember as a child going to church. So again, church was meaningless. Worshiping Jesus was not in my heart at all. But after my dad was diagnosed with cancer, everything changed. Many of you are fully aware of the great change that began to occur in my life when my dad was diagnosed with stage 4 cancer. Briefly, I was working in Mississippi as a plant manager for Tyson Foods. One January morning, my mom calls me, much like today. Mrs. Curry, you need to come home immediately. Your dad has cancer. We're not sure how long he has. Upon arriving in Vincennes, a good Samaritan hospital, I found out that a surgeon, the doctor, said, hey, surgery is a possibility to remove part of the cancer. So we, yes, we opted as a family then to make sure dad had surgery to remove as much of the cancer as possible. It was a very emotional moment for me at that time. To see my dad lying in the hospital, not knowing how long he has to live, it was hard. Full of emotion. Some of that emotion coming back now. But dad, who has stage four cancer, who just had surgery, is a rock. So it intrigued me how dad could be lying there having the surgery and then not knowing how long he has to live. I mean, how can he be this rock? I mean, it, it intrigued me. So while we took turns staying with him in the hospital that week, I, I said, dad, I don't get this. I mean, I'm emotional. I'm kind of falling apart with this very thought. Of what could happen to you. And here you are a rock. I don't get it. So he told to me. That the reason he could be. So steadfast. So certain. So sure of himself. A rock. And handle his emotions. Was because of Jesus. His answer truly surprised me. Again I was not seeking anything close to relationship with Jesus. Church was meaningless for me. A relationship with Jesus. I don't need it. But when he told me that, it began to change the course of the rest of my life. Later, we went back to Mississippi 
We got an invitation to attend church with one of Caleb's friends, and we went. And I started attending church regularly, making it the priority. And when I started attending church regularly, reading the Bible, hearing the messages, the Lord just spoke to me. And I was saved at the age of 38 on May 28th of 2001. But listen, here's the thing. Soon after I became a Christian, again, church is now something special. It's this, it's this extraordinary moment where I get to go and be with other believers and, just, and I can feed upon it. It revives me each and every week. It's something extraordinary. After I began to go regularly and became a Christian, I started noticing something. And I'm not being judgmental or condemning in any way, but I started noticing that while I was there getting revived from the message and the word, and living for Jesus, surrendering to him, I started noticing that other people were there seemingly going through the motions. It was nothing special for them. I mean, I observed things like this. People in attendance making out their grocery list. I noticed people who were at the church checking Facebook on their phone. One of my coworkers that were going to the same church I was going to even admitted to me that he went to church to meet girls. So it made me begin to ponder then, in this early part of my life, when I became a Christian, I began to ponder, is that truly worship? And just what really is worship? What is true worship? And if you ever have that moment where you begin to really think about what it is, then Ecclesiastes chapter 5 begins to provide the answer. And Solomon here then begins to define true worship and makes an argument, like we said for the theme, to never, never, never let worshiping God, the Lord Jesus, become mundane. Don't let it become commonplace. It should always be extraordinary. It should always be something special. I mean, essentially here then Solomon in this chapter, again, like we said, warns his readers, anybody that's reading Ecclesiastes chapter 5, he warns them of the dangers of making worship meaningless. And maybe you're thinking, okay, I hear you, but I don't have, the, in my life, I don't think it will ever become anything but extraordinary. Well, good for you. But like Jim Winter says in his study and commentary on Ecclesiastes, he says for many people that is not the case. He says, for many, worship at some point, some time in our life can become a meaningless exercise. They go through the routine, through the motions, and basically just check it off the list. So he says, here the preacher, Solomon, takes great pains then to make sure that is not the case. So now we go back to the text. We find Solomon's points for all of us. If we ever have had Somehow, some way, the worship for Lord Jesus to ever venture become meaningless and common. Now we look at some points that Solomon is giving us in these seven verses to help us to make sure it never becomes meaningless. And the first one is this, found in verse one. His first exhortation that we reword from that verse is to walk carefully before him. Walk carefully before him. Verse one. It says, guard your steps. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. 
Now, upon hearing this first exhortation, if you're like me, we've learned a lot about Solomon. So I'm thinking this first exhortation where Solomon is saying the way we should not ever let worship become meaningless is to walk carefully before God. I'm thinking, dude, who are you to say this to me? Because I know about you. I mean, we've already learned enough about Solomon to know that he was pursuing wealth and possessions. A lot of women. He had a thousand women, 700 wives, 300 concubines. The man's got to be absurd to have all these women. I mean, I can barely handle one. And that's all I need, right? So here he's got all this wealth and possessions. So if anything is ever allowing Solomon to get sidetracked or distracted from worshiping God, he's got it in his life. So who is Solomon to just to tell me the way in which is proper worship for it not to become anything but extraordinary? Who, who does Solomon think he is? Why is he telling others to walk carefully before the Lord? I, I, I think about that. And as I'm, I'm in that frame of thought then, being somewhat critical of Solomon, yes, I admit, I think that maybe we overlook something then about the man. I mean, maybe Solomon then in his pursuit, admittedly he had of worldly pleasures, was able to gain some sort of insight into what it should look like to truly worship the Lord. So with that thought, I give you Warren Moresby, who provides a great summary of the intention that Solomon has with this section. He says, Solomon had visited the courtroom. He had visited the marketplace, the highway, and the palace. Now he paid a visit to the temple, that magnificent building whose construction he has supervised. He watched the worshipers come and go, praising God, praying, sacrificing, and making vows. He noted that many of them were not at all sincere in their worship, and they left the sacred precincts in worse spiritual condition than when they had entered. Worshipper thinks it's a sin. He said, what was their sin? They were robbing God of the reverence and honor that he deserved. Their acts of worship were perfunctory, which means hardly given the effort, insincere, and hypocritical. Worshipy makes a great summation of what Solomon finds as he walks into the temple. When he makes his visit, this is what he sees. I mean, yeah, 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 we know that Solomon, we know about it. And what he was pursuing. But yes, he had the temple built. And it was a magnificent building. And he even bragged about the accomplishment of building the temple. But seemingly, as we look into Solomon then, in the words of this chapter that he is writing, somehow, some way he understood that when you come to the temple, the house of the Lord, you come to offer sincere worship. You come to the house of the Lord to give Jesus the utmost in praise and honor and glory. It's all about him, nothing about us. As Worsby himself then worded by looking at his words, anything less than that, anything less than giving our whole heart to Jesus, we walk in those doors of the church, of the house of the Lord, is sinful. What was the sin? You see, again, behind me, 
He said they were robbing God of the reverence and honor that he, that God deserved. Their acts of worship were only going through the motions. Perfunctory, meaning again, only a minimum effort on their behalf. It was insincere and hypocritical. They were robbing God of the true worship praise that he deserves. Now, not coincidentally, Jesus found this also to be the same kind of way in his day. In Matthew 21, in the last days, Jesus entered the temple, drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. I mean, essentially, the people then in Jesus' day still had neglect to the temple, to the worship of our Lord. And in that moment, then they'd been taking advantage of the Passover, making it a business rather than sincerely coming to offer atonement for their sin. And unfortunately, the visit to the temple for them, well, like Solomon maybe is observing, had become common. Meaningless. So Solomon then, as he walks into the temple in his day, sees something somehow similar, witnessed the same kind of thing, and then he urged, he urged everyone, including himself, or maybe even more himself. He urged everyone then to come to the house of the Lord, come to church, the temple, ready to give your very best praise and worship to him, to Jesus. He says, do not rob Jesus of the worship that he rightfully deserves. Give him his praise. Give him his worship. Come ready to give it to Jesus when you walk into the house of the Lord. This becomes Solomon's first exhortation to how any of us can make sure we always have church, the service, the worship, be extraordinary, never become meaningless. He says, come ready to serve, to honor him, to praise him and to worship him. And he says, be eager to listen to his word. Now, to do so means this. We walk into the church. We walk into the house of the Lord. We got to leave the world behind. Let your worries, your fears, any relationship troubles you're having, any financial burdens, anything in your life that exists that's troubling you, you got to let it stay at the door. Which I know, admittedly, in my life, is hard to do, really hard to do. A lot easier to say than it is to do. I mean, a lot can happen. I've been there. I know. A lot can happen on any given Sunday morning from the time you wake up to the time you get to the car, to the time you drive to the church, to the time you enter the door. A lot can happen in that time frame. In the commentary, Preaching the Word, Philip Ryken offers a bit of a portrayal of how a family of four gets ready for church in the morning. Here's his portrayal. Listen. He says, it's a Sunday morning, typically a day of rest and also of worship. The Jones family wakes up sleepy and grumpy. Dad stumbles over the laundry and kicks it out of the way. The older daughter argues with her mother about what she will or will not wear to church. 
The younger daughter spills her milk and cereal. Angry words are exchanged, especially when dad slams on the brakes while mom is trying to put on the lipstick in the car. Been there? As they get ready for church, no one in the family smiles or exchanges even one friendly word. And so they walk into the church, and it's time to put on a happy face. The mom and the dad smile at the first people they meet. Joyfully, they take their places in the sanctuary. When they stand to sing, their eyes are closed in reverent adoration. The music begins, and we hear what are singing the doxology. Praise God from all blessings flow. A lot can happen early on Sunday mornings. Fortunately for me, now it's just me and Sheila. But a lot can happen. I mean, she'll still mean to me every Sunday morning. And by the time I get here, I put on that happy face because I love all of you. But a lot can truly happen every Sunday morning. That isn't always the case, yes. I mean, it isn't always like that. But sometimes it is. Which means then that we have a lot of baggage that we carry around in life. I mean, life truly happens. And we get caught up in it. But we cannot let life get in the way of truly worshiping Jesus. So to close the first point that Solomon is giving us here, he's saying, hey, come ready and eager to listen and to worship and to hear God's word. He's saying, as we're paraphrasing, walk carefully before him. He says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God to draw near to listen to his word. That's his first exhortation of the three we have for this morning. But he also goes further than expressing not only to walk carefully, but also now to talk cautiously to him, which is verses two and three. But the emphasis really be upon verse two, which says, be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. Be not rash with your mouth. Be not hasty to utter a word before God. Now let me rephrase that and ask you a question to make sure we understand what Solomon is referring to. Have you ever been mad at God? Have you ever expressed a bad word toward God? Have you ever seen the movie Bruce Almighty? We might relate. I mean, most likely one or both of those we've done. Either we've been really mad at God or we would express some words we want to take back. In the movie Bruce Almighty, Bruce, who is played by Jim Carrey, kind of a character of his own, but Jim Carrey is playing Bruce, who is a reporter. Now, Bruce has a desire to become the anchor. I mean, he's a reporter. He wants to get to the desk and start reporting the news rather than being out in the field collecting the news. He wants to become the anchor to broadcast the news. And it doesn't happen in his quest. So he gets mad. He gets angry at God. Played by Morgan Freeman, who was a pretty decent character for God in the movie. But in the movie then, God, again played by Morgan Freeman, allows Jim Carrey, Bruce, to become God for a period of time. But when Bruce becomes God for this period of time, it changes perspective. It changes outlook toward God. Initially, he was angry, upset, because he didn't think that God ever had anything to do for him. 
but then later it changes perspective when he becomes God. But the movie then, I refer to it because it allows us to relate to Bruce, that things happen in life, and it can truly upset us at times. And when things begin to happen and we get caught up in just living either audibly or silently, we begin to say things like this, God, why did you let my father die of cancer? He was just ready to retire. Or God, I am so angry at you for letting 9-11 happen. Why didn't you stop that? Or more recently, we're saying, God, why are you allowing this pandemic to continue to be present? Why is COVID always still here about? It's led to death. It's business filing bankruptcy. There's even a new strain I'm hearing about. Why can't you stop it, God? I'm so angry about that. Or God, I hate you. I keep praying over and over again, and I don't see anything happening. You're nowhere in my life. We either sometimes say that out loud or we think it. I mean, life is difficult. Things do happen. And we're left to try to figure out, understand why. So as Christians, and maybe especially as Christians, we often begin to wonder and then question God, perhaps even expressing some harsh words to a mighty, sovereign, powerful God. But here's the thing. Honestly, as we begin to feel that way and even shout out, get mad and angry, question, ask why, God doesn't owe us an explanation for anything that occurs or happens in life. Now, we might, need, we might actually think he needs to give us an explanation or a reason, but he's God, and we are not. He is the creator. We are the created. Paul expressed in Romans chapter 9, verse 20, he says, who are you, old man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it? Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? Essentially, Paul echoes the words of Solomon. Solomon said it first, Paul said it later. To talk cautiously to God. Talk cautiously to God. Or maybe the best way to express the point that Solomon is making is to refer to the message from Eugene Peterson, the paraphrase of the scriptures, where he says, verse 2, this way. Don't shoot off your mouth or speak before you think. Don't be too quick to tell God what you think he wants to hear. God's in charge, not you. The less you speak, the better. The message it seems to have a way of communicating to us the point that Solomon is trying to make. To guard your words. Talk cautiously before God. So what is that Solomon is trying to tell us now to help try to keep worship extraordinary, how it never becomes mundane, common, and nothing special, how to keep it from becoming meaningless? He's saying, number one, walk before carefully before God. He's saying, number two, Talk cautiously before God. 
and he's not done yet. He says, thirdly, don't break a promise to him. Verse 4 and 5. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than you should, than you should vow and not pay. Solomon is saying something in which we've maybe all been that predicted. Maybe we've all been at some point in our life in that moment when we silently pray to God, say, God, rescue me, help me, save me. And in the minute we're expressing that in some sort of prayer, in that moment of the predicament that we're in, that we got ourselves in, by the way, by our own doing, we say, God, rescue me. And we're saying, God, rescue me, and I'll do such and such in exchange. If you come now and help me, I'll do this. Many of us have been there where we've made that vow. Solomon says, dude, you better keep it. As a troubled young man that walked through the field of Germany, a terrible electrical storm filled the sky. A lightning bolt struck near a tree, and the young man instantly took that as a sign from God. He was afraid. He was scared. He said, help me, help me, and I'll become a monk. That sudden vow committed and fulfilled changed the life of Martin Luther, who later became a reformer. Another young man who was a disreputable character named John Newton made a similar promise to God in the middle of a deadly storm which he was in the midst of. Newton, if you know him, you know he was taking slaves across the sea in the midst of the storm that was ravaging him and the people aboard the boat. He cried out in desperation, help me, God, save me, and I will change my life. Newton was spared from the storm and then committed to keep his vow. Again, he was taking slaves across the sea. A gradual transformation began in Newton's life led him into ministry, became a world-class hymnist who is the author of Amazing Grace. I mean, there's times such as this in all of our lives. We put ourselves in some sort of situation, we dig this big hole, and we cannot climb ourselves or get ourselves out of this pit and this hole that we're in. And then we begin to beg and help, simultaneously making the vow. But the question really is, how many times do we keep it? We don't have so much trouble saying, God, help me. But the trouble seems to come later when we have keeping the vow that we made in exchange for God's help. It doesn't always happen, but sometimes that's where we find ourselves, as it was for David, most likely the author of Psalm 66. He said, God, I will come into your house of burnt offerings. I will perform my vows to you, that which my lips uttered and my mouth promised when I was in trouble. It doesn't tell us what the situation was of David, what trouble prompted him to express these words written in the 66th Psalm. But whatever it was, David shouted out to God for rescue. And apparently God must have rescued him and helped him from his predicament. But in that moment, recognizing that moment that David had better be prepared to follow through with the vow. 
As Solomon states in verse 5, it is better that we should not make a vow than to make a vow and not keep it. It is better to not make a vow than to make a vow and not keep it. Now, as you're hearing that, if you're like me putting this together for this morning, maybe you're thinking, well, should we even not make vows? I mean, doesn't God's word say something about how we should not make an oath or vows? Well, in fact, there is something written in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus told the crowd concerning oaths. He said, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven or the throne of God. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Yeah, maybe we shouldn't be making oaths. But that doesn't stop us. When we begin to get in trouble, we begin to live a moment. And we need some help getting out of the pit. It should be. And a lot of times it is. God, the very first person we begin to turn to. And when we realize that God can help us, it just seems to happen that we make a promise. And Solomon says, hey, if that's the moment you're in, you better keep it. All that prompts Dr. Javis Jeremiah to say this. Bargaining with God is an extremely questionable activity, generally one to be avoided. But if you do put yourself on the line, don't even think about not making it good, for God is not mocked. What is bound before him is binding, just as he is bound by his many promises in the Scriptures. So if you hear those words and you're contemplating all this, no, we should not put ourselves in a position to make a vow or to bargain with God. But to Solomon's point, if we do somehow find ourselves in that unfortunate position and we make a promise, he's saying, make sure you carry it out to the end, as you have said. If you make a vow, you make an oath, keep it and carry it through. The New Living Translation has a commentary offers this fitting conclusion about this last point. He says, Solomon warns his readers about making foolish promises to God. In Israelite culture, making vows was a serious matter. Vows were voluntary. But once made, they were unbreakable. It is foolish to make a vow you cannot keep or to play games with God by only partially fulfilling your vow. It is better not to vow, than to make a vow to God and break it. He says simply, if you make a vow, keep it. So our entire intention here this morning by looking and going further into Ecclesiastes, now into the fifth chapter, is to consider the words of Solomon, who now is venturing into things above the sun to find meaning and purpose, and he says to all of us today, he gives us a warning to never let worship become meaningless. Solomon is not the person who has been the most sincere in worshiping God. Like you and me, we sometimes, like Solomon, just get caught up in life. And sometimes our best intentions go awry, and God is not the priority anymore. We carry all of our burdens in the door. And begin to concentrate on all the things happening in our life, in my life. 
thinking it's all about me, but it's never about any of us. It's always about God. And when we come, we come to praise him. We come to hear his word. We should be paying attentively to his word, ready to give him the worship and the praise that he deserves. Life can greatly distract us, and often it does. Things happen, but that should never distract us from truly giving God the worship he deserves. Solomon is aware of this. So he then concludes and leads to three things that we should do to never allow worship to become meaningless. He says, number one again, walk carefully with God. Guard your step. Watch your step. Listen to his word. Secondly, he says, talk cautiously with God. I call it at times when it begins to happen to me, when I begin to say something and I wish I hadn't, it's like word vomit. I mean, you know what? Words were thinking, they arrived here, and somehow they just came out. It's like word vomit. It's on the, I can't clean it up. It's a mess. Psalm says, avoid that. Don't shoot off your mouth or speak before you think. Don't be quick, quick to tell God what you think he wants to hear. God's in charge. Now you, the less you speak, the better. Talk cautiously with God. And then thirdly, he says, don't make a promise. Don't make an oath. Don't make a vow you don't intend to keep. We look upon this section of Ecclesiastes, and we find that these three things that Solomon is pointing us to today will help us to always make sure that worship is the utmost. It is sincere. It is honest. It is genuine. It is extraordinary. It is always special. Make these things not just a weekly habit, but a daily habit to give God the priority, always making him first. Father, Lord, we thank you for this message today, for the message in which it warns all of us to always give you first a priority. How we should always, Lord, in our lives, be engaged and looking forward to worship. Maybe, Lord, for another reason, the fact that, well, you deserve it. You gave us your only son. That whosoever should believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. He took, Jesus took our sin. He was nailed to the cross, Lord. The place where we should be. And for no other reason, we should worship him for that. So today, Lord, let us pay attention. Let us recognize that you truly should be praised and honored, glorified, and worshipped. I pray for everyone here today, Lord, who is assembled, for anyone who may be listening later to recognize we come to worship you. So let us put this into practice and make you first always in our life. Let us leave our troubles behind, focus upon you, and be thankful or sacrifice you made for us. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We love you. We praise you. We worship you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.